Well, this morning, I'm going to be talking about bad news and good news. Now, we have a, a world that's mostly preoccupied with bad news, more than good news, in its media and expression of general conversation. I think you'd agree with that. And that's why we've been given a gospel of good news. And it would be unwise to allow the emphasis of that gospel to be more on the bad news than on the good news. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church about this in his letter concerning the ministry of death and the ministry of life. And I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. God has equipped us to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter brings death, but the spirit gives life. The ministry of the law, written on stone, that brought condemnation and death and separation from God, came with a short-lived glory reflecting the nature of God's righteousness and wisdom. So that was the ministry of death, but it still had a, a glory because it reflected God's wisdom and righteousness. The face of Moses shone and Israel veiled their eyes and turned away. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have a much greater glory? And that's the ministry of life. That's the good news. The ministry of death can often be an instrument of bad news. So we can put our hope in this and speak clearly and confidently. For if the temporary order of things, the law, had its glory, much more will the eternal order have its glory. And that's the Holy Spirit putting God on display in our lives. That is the good news. For even today, when Israel reads the old covenant law, the same veil of turning away remains. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And where the spirit of the Lord is there, the heart is free. So we, with an unveiled face reflecting the glory of the Lord as a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory through the spirit of the Lord. Now, the commandments, that's not a ministry of bad news at all. It's just a matter of how it's ministered, in life or in death. Because the teaching of the law and the commandments had a measure of glory because it put the nature of God on display in his righteousness and his wisdom. It's on display now for all the world to see. You pray that people would realise that that's the foundation of our morality and of our order. As a society, it is there. It is God's foundation of wisdom, relational wisdom and righteousness. And if people do their best today, even in their own strength, to obey the commandments, they will live a more ordered and godly life. But it will not be the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. When I did the podcast series of the Ten Commandments, I explained at the beginning of each session that the way I was presenting the teaching was to emphasise the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant application of each commandment. 
and that this transformation of our lives was not just from bad to good, but from natural to spiritual. That's the transformation that God wants. We can do a lot of good things in the natural, and they do lead to order and peace, but transformation needs the spiritual into the image and likeness of God. The teaching of the commandments and the law with Israel was for the purpose of showing people what sin was. Sin towards God and sin towards one another. That's in Galatians chapter 3. And all the sins outlined in the Ten Commandments were sins against relationship. The first four were about not trusting God and not loving him. And the last six were not loving one another. That's what they were about. If you love one another, you won't steal, you won't tell lies, you won't kill. The Bible says that loving God and one another is the fulfilment of the commandments. It's in Romans chapter 13. Now, I grew up as a Catholic and I was taught the Ten Commandments and all about sin and punishment and about obedience to the church commandments also, with obligations of attending church every Sunday, receiving communion, going to confession, and doing penance for sins, and fasting, and giving, and other sacramental rites. Now this helped to form my conscience, and to cultivate a tender heart towards God, because there were many godly, loving people, bringing instruction. I was blessed in that way. But I always felt guilt and shame and wondered how I could become a better person. I felt loved and secure, did my best about some of the legalistic bad news until at about 19 years of age I took a break from it all, went my own way. Some years later, I married a committed Protestant girl and began to search anew for God. And we had many discussions over Christian doctrine. Sometime later, she bought me a Bible, and by the grace of God, while reading that Bible in the middle of the night, I found Jesus. And then I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Everything began to change, and so did I. And I had a clear understanding of the difference between the works of faith and the dead works of doing religion in our own strength. I also realised that the works of faith and of dead works was everywhere, in every church of every denomination, and that the Bible had a lot to say about it. I still respect the Catholic Church and every other church that teaches the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and the love of the Father and the grace of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we will all receive even greater revelation of all these truths. I find that the hardest thing to grapple with is the teaching of a God that is more angry than loving. There is a teaching that proclaims that Jesus died for our sins to appease an angry God who is angry with all of us because of our sins 
and that his anger had to be taken out on Jesus, who faithfully took that anger and punishment for us, and so changed the Father's heart towards us. This is broadly described as the doctrine of penal substitution or penalty or punishment substitution. No, I believe that the Father so loved the world that he sent his Son to die for us, not to change the heart of the Father, but to change the heart of humanity by giving them a new heart and a new spirit through the new covenant and the Holy Spirit. In fact, if Jesus died on the cross to change the heart of an angry God, then it didn't work because God is still angry. He's still angry about the destruction that sin does to the human soul of his beloved humanity that he made in his image. And he is still angry at Satan for his dark heart of malice that holds sway over the human heart. That anger is called the wrath of God. Orge, intense feeling of indignation, which didn't disappear when Jesus died for our sins on the cross. It is the loving, unyielding, defence that God expresses for his human family in correcting the harmful acts of unlove called sin that we commit towards one another. He doesn't want that to happen. This act of his intense love is nested in justice and truth as well as in mercy and forgiveness. That's in Romans chapter 1 verse 18. His indignation against what sin does to harm his kids and he deals with it and he's dealing with it today <laughs> in this world. Today God is allowing many areas of injustice and the suppression of truth to be uncovered. The word for uncovered is apocalypto. It's apocalyptic. It's revealing the things that God in his heart, wants to see changed. And God wants these things to come under his hand of discipline in a world of abounding suspicion and blame and resentment. And it's getting worse. God counters all of that negative activity with a gospel of hope and an abundance of grace where God is always within reach and peace can flourish in our inner lives. God hates the bad news of what sin does to people. So he has good news about what forgiveness and reconciliation does for people. That is why there has to be a gospel of good news for those who do harm and for the poor people who get harmed. They've got to be brought out of that despondency and guilt and shame. The good news is that there is forgiveness. And the further good news is that there is the gift of the life of Jesus within. He gives us a new spirit, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us a new heart. People need to be told that they're forgiven. 
and they need no longer be separated from God because of the feelings of guilt and shame about their sinful behaviour, which makes them hide from God and cover up in front of each other. That's what guilt and shame does. Doesn't save people, makes them run away. The conviction of the Holy Spirit saves people. So people who hide from God and cover up can receive a new mindset. The word in the Greek is metanoia, and that means repentance. The new mindset acknowledges that God is not at odds with them. They no longer need to be at odds with God. They're reconciled. They can acknowledge with relief their sinful nature and be forgiven and transformed. They cannot have everything that they want. They're his children. He's a good dad. But they can receive every good thing that God wants for them. They can now know what it means to be saved. And they also need to know that God holds us to account to not neglect such a great salvation, the healing of the soul. God's doing that beautiful work if the words are proclaimed that affirm that, his new covenant. Jonathan Edwards was a profoundly spiritual man of Puritan and Reformed theology who preached powerfully and sincerely about the death and resurrection of Jesus as our saviour from sin. In 1733 to 1735, there was a revival in his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, USA, where there were 30 people being saved each week. And it's reported that in six months, nearly 300 of 1,100 youths in that town in Northampton were admitted to the church. Now, that was the beginning of something. It was credited as being the beginning of a spiritual awakening, that six months. And it led to becoming the Great Awakening under another man, George Whitfield, in 1740. But Jonathan Edwards' influence of Puritanism and Calvinism shaped the character of American Protestantism for many years and it still has a sway in its expression in modern evangelicalism. I'm going to read you an excerpt of Jonathan Edwards' preaching from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So I'm talking about bad news and good news. They're relative things when it comes to the gospel because the gospel's always good news. But it can be done well or it can be done not so well. And the not-so-well proclamation of the gospel can shape a culture, can shape a nation, can change, it can shape an entire society. Let me read it to you. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow for one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And why should God be obliged to express such wonderful love to you, who never exercise the least degree of love to him in all your life? You never have loved God, who is infinitely glorious and lovely. And why then is God under obligation to love you? 
who are all over deformed and loathsome as a filthy worm, or rather a hateful viper. That's what you've got to tell your neighbours, all right? You have no benevolence in your heart towards God and you never rejoice in God's happiness. And why then should God be looked upon as obliged to take so much care for your happiness as to do such great things for it as he does for those that are saved? He was a Calvinist as well. You care not what becomes of God's glory. You are not distressed how much soever his honour seems to suffer in the world. And why should God care any more for your welfare? Has it not been so that if you could but promote your private interests and gratify your own lusts, you cared not how much the glory of God suffered? And why may not God advance his own glory in the ruin of your welfare? Not caring how much your interest suffers by it. And why then is it harsh that God does not do such great things for you as the changing of your nature, raising you from spiritual death to life, or conquering the powers of darkness for you. The odd thing is that even if the gospel is preached badly and tells more bad news than good news, the Holy Spirit will honour the hearts of his children who call upon his name, even out of guilt and shame, and not out of the gratitude and joy of forgiveness. As long as the death and resurrection of Jesus as our saviour from sin is sincerely proclaimed, then the hearts of people will search for God. But I'm not in favour of the way that Jonathan Edwards preached. That's what I'm leading up to. The work of the gospel in the hearts of people is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit of grace and people came to God. And God's not so much interested in the style of the preacher but he does want to hear the truth of his death on the cross his resurrection and his giving of the Holy Spirit and he's allowed to and able to get into the hearts and wills of people to overcome any kind of overemphasis on the bad news of how terrible they are this narrative has affected the mind and heart of the Western Church, as well as people in Western society who have stopped going to church and don't want to hear about God. What and who we are told we are by God or someone speaking in his name is what we take upon ourselves and it has a profound effect on our souls. And if we can't face that narrative, we escape from its punishment and the punishing thought of it somehow. Today's Western world might refer to God as an idea of God at a distance. But it's a world that's proud of its individualism and independence and it's convinced that we can work life out by ourselves without God. That's what the world's become. But there's a gospel there waiting. The sad consequence is a crowded humanity swimming in a high tide of isolation, loneliness and with a suffering soul. Christians often incorrectly manage their own guilt and shame by declaring judgment upon the world for all of its wickedness. That's an escape route.
The church is not here to judge the world. But I can see why. <laughs> because they feel so judged themselves. And what have you got left but to judge others? In contrast is the spiritual understanding of a man called Athanasius who wrote in around about 350 AD. Athanasius was an Egyptian Coptic Christian. He was a theologian, he was a bishop in that church and a church father. And he was the chief defender of Trinitarianism against Arianism, which is a doctrine that Jesus was not God and there's no Trinity. Just do it all by yourself. Now this man had a tremendous effect on what I believe is a river of gold that has run all the way from that time, which is around about the time the Pope was calling councils together to organise what the canon of the Bible would be, which books would be truly canonical and which would not be. And this man had a wonderful influence on so many saints that actually decided to live for God. As the church went off and became a nation state, it still had so many multitudes of people who lived for God because there was this teaching. And also there were the creeds that backed up this teaching. He was a man of his time at the right time, in the right way. He says this, It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing by the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or under the deceit of evil spirits. As then the creatures whom God had created reasonable, like the Word, capital W, that's Jesus, the Word, he'd created them reasonable. These were in fact perishing, and such noble works were on their way to ruin. What then was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? And in that case, what would be the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have created them at all than to have been created to be neglected and perish. He's talking to humanity here. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his own eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. And that far more than if he had ever created man at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. And he writes further, Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all of us, and he offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, A-double-L, all might die, and the law of death thereby be abolished because having fulfilled in his body that for which he was appointed, death was thereafter voided of its power for men. That's the death and separation from God. This he did 
that he might turn men again to incorruption who had turned back to corruption. That's the work that is needed in this lifetime. Who had turned back to corruption and make them alive through his death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection, thus he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. So that is why God's wrath passionately says no to the plunging of mankind forever into a mindset of separation from God and stuck with a heart and a conscience of guilt and shame. So the gospel has to be the good news of who God is and of how he sees you in his sight as his child. Where is the emphasis going to be to save the soul? To have it walk towards God rather than run away? We're living in a world where the great percentage of people that have attended church now don't. Only his son Jesus could sinlessly plunge himself into all of that sinful humanity and bend back the separated mindset of Adam with its independence and guilt and shame. And by dying sinless for us as sinful humanity and rising again for us as glorified humanity, he could join our lives to his in oneness of spirit where we can live a life of knowing we're loved by him and able to love him back and be transformed. That is not penal substitution or punishment substitution. That is sharing his resurrection with us and lifting us into that place with him. So it's not based on the so-called justice of an angry God, the gospel. It is the way for us to find new life in oneness with God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for creating us to be loved, to love you and to love one another. We submit to that now and say thank you, Holy Spirit, for your grace in completing it in us. In Jesus' name, amen.